Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Here we are. How you doing? Good morning. Man. Well, a little bit more awake than first service. Um, here's the deal. I'm going to need your help. All right. I, we, just got back, um, we just got back from Hawaii, Chicago, Michigan. So we acclimated on the way back um, and then got home Friday evening, Saturday morning, all that to say, my body has no idea what time it is. Um, and so if I don't hear you giving me some feedback as we're going today, I'll just keep preaching, assuming you haven't gotten it yet. Um, and so I want you to get it so bad that I'll just keep going. And uh, third service can just come join us in a little bit. So, all right, you ready? <laughs> Good. <laughs> now you're nervous. You're not just ready. Now you're nervous. Um, Here's, uh, we are in this series uh, entitled um, Shoestring Budget. How many of you have heard the term before? Uh, Shoestring Budget, or I'm living on a shoestring. Uh, Jonathan Garland last week sort of dealt with a little bit of the etymology of this word, where this uh, phrase comes from. There's a couple of interesting things. Uh, One is that they actually believe that early on in England, this was a reference to prisoners who would take their shoes, then take their shoestrings out, tie them to the corner of the shoe and hang them out the window of their cell in an effort to collect money from people who went by and they dropped coins in and then they would have some coins they could use in prison. Um, And so they were living on a shoestring. Also this idea of peddlers and the cheapest thing that they had available to sell were shoestrings and it was also the thing that they sold most often. But what it really is referencing um, for us now, today, when we hear this term, is a shoestring is a small amount of money that seems inadequate to the purpose for which it's intended. How many of you would say that perfectly describes my budget? It's a small amount of money that seems inadequate for the purpose for which it's intended. And we're going to be looking at this issue of money and how God deals with money in the scriptures. And Jonathan Garland referenced last week that one of the number one complaints that a generation has had about the church is that the church talks about money too much. And and here's what I would say. Maybe the fault of the church has been that the church has talked about money in a wrong way for the wrong reasons too much. But what I hope you discover today in this series of why your money matters to God is that it actually has nothing to do with God's needs and everything to do with ours. So you still ready? Okay, good. You can leave now. I'm just giving, okay. All right. All right. Here we go. Um, maybe we should determine, since we're talking about budgets and a shoestring budget, um, if a shoestring is an insufficient amount of money uh, to accomplish the purpose for which it's intended, then what is the purpose of your money? Like, 
what is the reason that we make money, that we have money, that we are given money? What's the purpose of our money? And I would say if you were to boil it down in a really succinct form, most of us would say that initially at least, the purpose of my money is to give me security. And you have to ask the question, well, what do we mean by security, right? Uh, is security everything that we want? Or what do we mean when we say that the purpose of my resources, of my funds, of my money, first and foremost, is to provide me with security? Well, what does security look like for us? And I, I would say that security is having enough food, shelter, clothing, and opportunities. Opportunities for employment, opportunities to make money, opportunities for education. But does it also include things like enough firearms? Yes, I saw several heads shaking yes fervently with, with strong conviction. Uh, what, what about enough bedrooms in the house so that everybody has their own bedroom? Or what about enough acres of land so that I can do all the things I want to on my acres of land? How do we define enough when it comes to security? And then all you'd have to do is just take a trip with me to India or places around the world and you would discover that often what we believe is a need is actually just a want and that in most places in the world we are extremely wealthy from their perspective. When it comes to this issue of enough, we have more than enough by and large. And, and then research actually shows us that if we move from the place of I have security, now I think my money actually will provide for me happiness. And when you ask people how much money would you need in order to be satisfied, they will always say a little more. How much more, just a little more would be enough to be really satisfied. And you can move from this security has been provided, but I also think that more money would provide happiness for me. It would provide satisfaction for me. And the research actually is abundantly clear on this issue of money and happiness. Up to about $75,000 a year, there is a marked increase in satisfaction or joy or happiness that comes with financial resources. But over $75,000, there is no measurable increase in happiness or satisfaction for a person. In fact, um, uh, roughly 48% um, of households in the U.S. make more than 75000 a year, but 80% of Americans believe that if they had more money, they would be more happy. And what you will discover in time is that money actually doesn't produce happiness in and of itself. And when we discover that it doesn't produce happiness, then we tend to believe that it will at least give us significance. And maybe that significance would give me a sense of purpose or meaning or happiness. If, if I could have enough money, then I would be a significant person. I would be viewed in that way. And so we actually discover that our wealth doesn't produce happiness. But maybe if it could give us respect, then respect would make me happy. Ultimately, if I believe that my money is about my security, my happiness, or my significance... I'm destined for disappointment. It actually doesn't produce any of those things for me in the long run, which brings me to my title today, um, Show Me the Money. 
Now, I want to make this caveat because just because I reference a quote from a film does not mean I endorse that film that I saw back in 1996 and don't remember any of the rest of it, but I remember this part. I remember Cuba Gooding Jr., the athlete, as he's engaging with his manager, um, who happens to be Tom Cruise, but the movie Jerry Maguire, and he comes to the conclusion that he likes Jerry, he wants to keep Jerry as his manager, but Jerry's got to do something for him. In fact, he goes into this tirade on a phone call with Jerry Maguire. He says, listen, Jerry, my wife likes you. I like you. My family likes you. Uh, but here's, I need you to do something for me, Jerry, because the reality is that if you don't do this, I can't stay with you as my manager. Are you ready for it? It's very personal to me. It's very, very personal. It's a very important thing to me, Jerry. In fact, um, this is a family motto. Are you ready for it? Jerry, yeah, I'm ready for it. Are you ready for it? Yes, I'm ready for it. Here's what you got to do for me. You got to show me the money. Say it with me, Jerry. Show you the money. No, 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 not like that. You got to say it with some passion because, you know, he was black and Jerry's so white. <laughs> and he's like, you got to say it with some fervor, with some conviction. And he's yelling in his office, show me the money. I think we often approach our relationship with God in this way. Listen, God, I like you. I'd love to follow you. I'd love to be really committed to you. But you're just going to have to show me some things before I'm really ready to say yes to this. So say it with me, God. God's like, no. <laughs> it may be a great business practice, but it's a terrible faith practice. When we approach God in this way, and often what we discover is that in faith, there is this element of personal trust that is often required before we can have personal experience with him. Um, we were just in Molokai. This is our second time to be there. And there's this crazy cool tree that we discovered the first time there. And my kids love to climb in this tree. It's a sea hibiscus tree, which sounds weird if you've ever been around hibiscus bushes. Um, this is a full-on tree, and it's so Cool, I got a picture here. This is my wife up in the tree. Um, it's an, uh, down by Ali'i Park, and we go down there and we climb in this tree. And so as soon as we land in Molokai, my girls are like, can we go to the tree? I'm like, really? Like, all the things to do in Hawaii, go to the tree. But they really want to go. Now, my girls love climbing. Most of my girls love climbing in this tree. In fact, two of my girls are up immediately. They're climbing to the top. They're having a great old time. I, they're, they're my risk takers. In fact, Katie, um, my middle girl, she is the epitome of a risk taker. In fact, we were flying um, from uh, Honolulu into um, Milwaukee and then into Chicago, and they said, hey, we just want you to know you should pee before you get on the plane, because once you get on the plane, you're sitting down and you're not getting back up, because the Windy City is living up to its name. Um, in fact, it's going to be a super bumpy ride, and so we're on our way in, and they were not lying. Like, there would have been times we would have been plastered on the ceiling had we not had our seatbelts on, and we land, and my daughter Katie is like, that was the best flight ever! Can every flight be like that? I'm like, no, it can't. Like, there are people being carried out in the fetal position. I was like, I will never fly again. But so two of my girls, they don't mind risk at all. They really enjoy it. But one of my girls has a risk aversion. And I could tell her all I want. Both of your sisters have climbed the tree. You should climb the tree. It's not dangerous. It's not too high. I'm right here. I got you if anything were to happen. But the reality is, until she's actually willing to take the step, until she's actually willing to trust me, she will not experience the joy of what it will produce. But once she does... Oh, man, good luck getting her out of the tree after that. In fact, the only thing she wanted to do for the rest of our time in Hawaii, not snorkeling, 
It's not swimming with sea turtles. It's not hunting axis deer, which I don't know why they don't want to do that. It's, it's going to the tree. I would say often in our relationship with God, he's inviting us into things that we actually won't experience the delight and the joy and the pleasure and the satisfaction and the significance that come from them until we're willing to step into them. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to address two issues uh, related to our money. And I'm going to break them into two separate categories. And you may think about them as one category, but biblically they aren't. And the first one is this issue of generosity. And I would define generosity in this way, uh, benevolent giving, special gifts, special offerings, but giving as a sacrifice. And the second one is tithes which is like an old word, I think, for a lot of people. If you didn't grow up in church, you're probably like, mm, don't know what that means. And tithes, simply, from a biblical perspective, is 10% of my increase. 10% of my harvest, or 10% of my flocks over that year, or 10% of my income. But the tithe was this specific amount, this 10% that I would give. I want to look at these, generosity and tithes. And I want to start with the second one first, tithes. Now, you may have viewed tithes as an expectation from God growing up in the church, and it's sort of this, um, if I would, then he would scenario, that tithing was an act of faith, but it actually isn't described as an act of faith in the scriptures, which brings me to the law of causality. The law of causality in a really simple description is this. Everything that begins has a cause. Everything that begins has a cause. That this is a result of that. And as I think about this issue of tithing, which has sort of fallen out of favor in church conversations, um, the question comes to mind, in the scriptures, which came first? The command to give of the tithe or the act of giving the tithe. The principle of tithing actually does not show up as a law first in the scriptures. In fact, hundreds of years before the law is ever given, tithing shows up in the Bible. And the first two places that it's found are hundreds of years before the law shows up. And the first one is in Genesis 14. And there's a man named Abram, and God has called Abram. And he said to Abram, I want you to leave your homeland. I want you to step out in faith and go on a journey with me. And I want to take you to a place you don't know about yet, but you'll know when you get there. And I'm going to bless your socks off. If they had socks, I don't know if they had socks, but if they did, he was going to bless them off. I actually don't know what that means, but that's what's going to happen. So I want to bless you. Abram. And so Abram does. In faith, he takes off. And while he's en route, he gets to a place where he begins to settle. He's got his nephew Lot along with him. And some invaders attack, five kings specifically attack. And they take his nephew Lot, his whole family, and all of his possessions into captivity with them. And they head back with the spoils of war. Abram has about 315 or so um, fighting-aged men in his household. He calls it an army. Not so sure they've been trained. This is their first battle. But Abram's like, I have got to get Lot back. And so he takes off with his ragtag army, and God gives him victory. Uh, like, he gets all of the spoils that were taken back, Lot and his entire family, and he's returning, and on his way back, he approaches a place called the Valley of the Kings. 
and he is met by a strange character, to say the least, in the scriptures, a guy named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is described as the king of Salem, which means the king of peace, and he's a priest of God Most High. And he comes out to meet Abram with some food, with some bread and some wine and a blessing. Here's what happens. Genesis 14, verse 17. After Abram returned from his victory over Kedar Lomar, and all, the ally, and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, or peace, and priest of God most high, brought Abram some bread and wine. So he comes out, he's going to refresh him, he comes out to meet him. And then Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you, past tense. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. Just no instruction, no, here's what you're supposed to do when this happens. It was a, a response out of gratitude, this acknowledgement through this individual that God had provided victory for you, and his response to what God had provided was to give back 10% of what had been taken. That's Abram's response in this moment to what God had already done. The second place that it's found in the scriptures is actually um, in Genesis 28, and it's in the story of Jacob. Jacob, if you remember, as we made our way through his story, is on the run. He's offended everyone in his life other than his mother, and his mother and he have connived as a way to get his brother's birthright from him. They have deceived his dad, they've deceived his brother, and now he's running for his life. As he's running for his life, he doesn't know what the future holds for him. In fact, you can tell that he's quite apprehensive about what the future may or may not hold for him, and he goes to rest for the evening in a place, and as he falls asleep, he has a vision in the night, and in the vision, there is this stairway to heaven, and angels are ascending and descending, and all this activity is going on. And then God stands at the top of the stairway, and he begins to speak to Jacob. And he pronounces a blessing on Jacob that was the same blessing pronounced all the way back on Abram, who becomes Abraham. And he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. You're going to have more descendants than the sand of the seashore. You're going to prosper in every way. The land you're sleeping on right now will be your land. I mean, God just pronounces this extraordinary provision and blessing over Jacob. And this is Jacob's response in that moment. Genesis 28, verse 20. Then Jacob made this vow, if. If God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, there's a lot of ifs in there, then the Lord will certainly be my God, and this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place for worshiping God, and I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. What Jacob's saying is that if God will do everything he's declared, and I believe he will, I'm going to keep moving forward and trust that he is going to provide everything that he said he's going to provide. And when he does that, then in response, I will give a tenth of all of it to him. 
if you were to fast forward then to the Old Testament law, the moment when God gives a command regarding this issue of the tithe, the command is so abundantly clear that the tithe follows the income or the incoming of the harvest. In other words, if you have no harvest, you give no tithe. It's very clear that it's actually a response to what God has done. I think often we think about tithing, if you think about tithing at all, we think about it as an act of faith, but it isn't actually an act of faith. It's an act of response to a faithful God who already provided something for you. It's distinctly different than sacrificial giving in the scriptures. It's actually a response to the kindness, the goodness, the generosity of God. And I realized as I was looking into this all over again that God only asks Israel to give the tithe as a response to what they have received. And so if they received nothing from the Lord, then they gave nothing because 10% of zero is... It's not hard. 10% of zero is... Zero, that the tithe was designed and intended all the way before it became a law to be a response to the goodness and the faithfulness of God. The tithes were not a sacrifice, they were a response. And here's how I would describe the difference. The tithe was in response to God's gracious provision. The sacrifices were in expectation of God's provision of grace. God, I need forgiveness in this moment. And so he sets up the sacrificial system with its offerings and with its sacrifices. And that will ultimately be fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That will be made available fully and finally forever for everyone. But the tithe was actually designed to be a response after God had provided graciously. Which brings me to first things first. I don't know if you've ever watched someone um, approach a task or a problem, and instead of doing like what needs to be done, the most critical thing first, they do um, whatever's easiest first. Anybody ever, ever experienced this before? Um, like your tire is routinely losing air, and so you just keep filling the tire up rather than actually taking the tire off, taking it in and getting it repaired. Or you put in the goo stuff in your tire, and now it's lopsided because you didn't drive right away, and you're just like, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun as you drive. Oh, well, that was easier, like, but actually it just is worse over time. And here's what I've discovered as you look in the scriptures, that money isn't actually the big deal to God. And in fact, it isn't the first thing that he's most interested in. And, and in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to make some extraordinary statements. Here's what he says. I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to do away with them. I came to fulfill them. And that anyone who teaches others to diminish the law or the prophets is in big trouble. And anyone who teaches others to adhere to the law is adhering to what I desire. Now listen to what he says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. How many of you would say not murdering is a good thing? I was hoping to see more hands, but whatever. Um, <laughs> how many of you would say it's good not to murder? Let's just come on, please. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. Duh. Um, uh, but I say... 
If you are even angry with someone, and many manuscripts include without cause, if you are angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Now, wait a minute. I thought the murderer was subject to judgment. You're saying that even if I'm angry with someone, I'm subject to judgment? And here's what he's doing. He's pushing it down deeper. He's saying what causes murder is anger, an unwillingness to forgive, an unwillingness to let go of, an unwillingness to show grace and mercy the way I've shown you grace and mercy. This is actually the genesis of murder that shows up over here. And he's trying to get to the deeper issues. And this is the issue of the heart. And then he goes on, verse 23. So... If you're offering your gift at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your gift to God. Wait, wait. If you're at the altar, let's put this in our context. Uh, It's the um, second song in the service today. It's the offering song, at least that's what it says on Planning Center. It's the offering song, um, and you're on your way up to do some giving, and all of a sudden you are reminded, oh man, so-and-so is so offended with me. He says, put the brakes on. (laughs) I hope to see this next Sunday. Somebody's on their way up to give, and then they stop, they drop it, and they run out of the room. I got to make a phone call. I need to be reconciled to my brother before I come and offer my gift. In other words, God is more concerned about our broken relationships than he is about our gifts and offerings. I love that he says, don't withhold it, leave it right there, you can come back and give it in a minute. (laughs) But, But first, first things first, be reconciled to your brother or sister. That's actually more important to God, which brings me to gnats and camels. Now, Garland did a great job dealing with this passage last week, and Jesus is addressing the religious leaders of his day. And and I want to just pull out a couple of other insights from this passage. Matthew 23, verse 23. He says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. That's never good when Jesus just goes there right away. Hypocrites. For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In other words, tithing is great, but what are you doing about the oppression around you, about the needs of the poor, about personal forgiveness and personal obedience? What are you doing about the bigger issues? Because it is possible that we could be generous at the altar on Sunday and selfish to the core every other day of the week. Oh, that should have gotten an amen. Come on now. You can at least say amen so that it's your neighbor who needs to hear it instead of you. I mean, like, oh, I'm in agreement with that. Like, the reality is that we could be generous on a Sunday at the altar. We could bring our gift, but we could actually reveal in our hearts that we're selfish to the core. And he's addressing this issue. We could be givers on a Sunday, and we could be hoarders on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So how do I avoid the trap of dismissing the big things by pointing at the smaller things that I am doing? And what this passage really reveals is that tithing does matter, but there are things that matter more. He goes on, you should tithe, yes, But do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, 
You strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel instead. It's kind of a weird thing to say unless you put it in its context. Because I don't know about you, but every time I go out moose hunting, I'm certain I swallow roughly 10,000 gnats over the time that I'm out there, uh, right? But this is actually about something much more important because both the gnat and the camel are listed in Leviticus 11 as unclean things. They're actually trying to keep the law. They're not straining it out because it's gross to drink gnats in your water. They're trying to strain it out because they want to be holy. They want to be righteous. They want to be pure. He says, you try and strain out the gnat so you don't break the law found in Leviticus 11, but in the process of doing that, you're eating the camel, which is far more intentional than accidentally swallowing a gnat. It's a much bigger deal. I don't know if you've ever tried to eat a camel, but it has to be real intentional. (laughs) He says, here's what's happening here, that you are actually failing to tithe to them was the gnat that they were trying to avoid, but their injustice, their mercilessness, their unfaithfulness, those are the camels that they were actually swallowing without paying any heed or mind to it. You know why it's um, often easy to ignore those things? Uh, I'll tell you why. It's because it's often easier and far less expensive to us to give money than it is to take action. I'm not not trying to guilt you into anything. I'm just giving you an illustration, but it's far easier to give money towards um, child trafficking issues or issues that are dealing with child abuse than it is to actually take children in and make them part of your own family. It's just often easier and far less expensive to give money than it is to actually participate in the real solution. And we're called to do both. And he's saying, listen, you've tried really hard to do all the right things in this area and you've missed the much bigger thing. Both are important. Which brings me to codependent. Codependent by definition is this, um, excessive physical, emotional, or psychological reliance on another individual. I think the church has taught for many, many years that God somehow is codependent on us. That God is in need of our worship. Maybe you, I've heard it, I've seen it online even recently where people have said, what kind of God, what kind of egomaniac needs me to worship him? And can I just apologize on behalf of the church for presenting a God who seemed needy? God doesn't need jack from you. That means nothing. (laughs) Sorry, I was getting a little fired up for a minute there because nobody was saying amen and we're going to be going for six hours here like... God doesn't actually need anything. So we maybe grew up believing God was codependent um, or at least interdependent. He needed us and we needed him. This was an interdependent relationship. But neither of those things are true when you're talking about the sovereign God of all the universe. He doesn't actually need anything from you and I. In fact, in Acts 17, this is how Paul describes it. He is, God is, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. So if our money and generosity and tithing actually aren't about God getting his needs met, then what is it about? 
there are two primary objectives that the tithe is described as meeting in the scriptures. And the first one is this, to provide for the needs of the poor and the priesthood in Israel. Because the priesthood had made the decision that they were going to give their lives away to serving the people of Israel, and God had told them they don't get land in the promised land. In fact, what he says to them is, I am your portion. And so as a result, they didn't have land to cultivate or to harvest or to raise animals on or any of those sorts of things because they were giving their lives away to the work of the ministry for the nation of Israel in the temple. And so he says, when you bring the tithe in, it's meant to provide for the needs of the poor in the community, and it's meant to provide for the needs of the priest who are serving in the temple. But the second reason is this, and equally as important for us, and it's to express gratitude, for us to express gratitude in a way that reminded the people that God was actually their provider. And so when I respond with this 10%, I'm simply reminding myself that everything that came in was a gift from him. The ability to make it was a gift from him. And in responding to him in this way, I'm acknowledging and reminding myself that who he has been in the past, he will be in the future. I need it, not him. Now, There were also what were known as sacrificial gifts or sacrificial offerings, generosity and benevolence, special needs that came up in the temple for the building of the temple. And they were for a very different purpose. They were these things that were above and beyond the tithe and were intended to reveal something about the character of God and our willingness to give them. And a great example of this is actually found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. There's a community um, in a place called Macedonia, and they are experiencing persecution. Not like, you know, we get all fired up when someone tells us we can't meet in a building for a couple of weeks. Like, no, they were getting killed for their faith, having all of their possessions taken from them, being imprisoned for their faith. And in the midst of all this, there's a need in Jerusalem, and they want to be a part of meeting that need. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we had hoped. He's going to describe why they did it. Here it is. Verse 9. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you he could make you rich. This is the distinction I would make between tithing and giving or offerings. If tithing is a grateful response to God's goodness to me, then generosity is a sacrificial reflection of God's goodness towards you. Generosity, benevolent giving, sacrificial giving is actually a way I display to you what God is like. His desire for you, his interest in 
you. We were in the airport in Seattle getting ready to board our flight to come back to Alaska on Friday evening. My three girls, Kitri and I, it was pretty packed in N5. How many of you have been in N5 before? It's one of the greatest places in the world. Um, it was pretty packed in there because our flight had been delayed. And our flight had been delayed, um, we found out um, while we were sitting there, because our uh, pilot's seat was broken. And apparently they need a seat um, if they're going to fly the plane. So, um, but when we got on the plane, we discovered what they meant by broken. <laughs> the pilot's seat was broken in that it would not fully recline. And I thought, I don't want his seat to fully recline. Why would I want his seat to fully recline? That makes absolutely no sense to me. I do not want to go up there and see my pilot fully reclined with a blanket and a nappy. Like, no. I don't even, I mean, I get it. I understand there's two pilots, blah, blah, blah. But it's a short flight. I don't care if he can recline or not. But that was the delay. And while we're in there, it's getting more and more and more crowded because other people are showing up for their flights also. And as we're sitting there, uh, no less than maybe five or six feet away from me, a young man steps up. And he's got his bag with him, and he looks all a little disheveled as he steps up, and he introduces himself, and he says this. He says, I struggle with Asperger's, which is a high-functioning form of autism. I missed my flight because I got here late, and they won't provide a place for me to stay tonight. I can't fly out until tomorrow, and I can't afford to get a hotel room for the night. Would you help me get a hotel room? I called. It was 160 bucks. I don't know about you, I have all these thoughts that race through my head, you know, like, well, is he doing this at every terminal? Is this just a scam? And I thought, well, he had to have a ticket to get in here, like, clearly he missed it. And then all of a sudden, the Lord just breaks in, like, as he does sometimes, often. I said, what is that with your kid? Like, what kind of courage would it take to stand up? He clearly was struggling and just asked for help. So I had this cash in my wallet. I never have cash in my wallet, but I had this cash in my wallet, and I'd been spending little bits of it here and there as we'd been traveling, you know, around. I didn't know how much was left in there, and so immediately, I mean, as soon as he gets done making his appeal, and you can see everyone sitting around looking super awkward, right? They're like, oh, I must respond to this text right now, or like, oh, I got some work to do. I'm like, I'm reading this book upside down. I mean, whatever. Like, it's just a super awkward moment, and yet our response, Kitri and I, is just like, what do we got? And so I get out my wallet, and I look to see, I don't know how much is in there. I got 60 bucks in cash left, and so I just pull it out, and I give it to him. And as I'm handing it to him, we begin to observe everybody around us, like, pulling cash out, right? And like, and they're giving the guy, there are people like, I didn't think they could hear what he was saying, and they're walking over. I mean, people I had already prejudged, you know, before we got on the plane, like, Lord, don't let me sit by them. They do yoga, you know, whatever, like, and... <laughs> And they're coming over and handing the guy cash, and he's counting it out, you know? And he's just like, all the things you would expect with the things that he struggles with, you know? And he's just counting it out. He's like, I'm $5 short, you know? And like, the need gets met. And in that moment, in that moment, I was reminded of a quote. Jonathan Garland actually said it last week. He said, money can't make you happy, but generosity sure can. And I absolutely believe that. Joining God in what he's doing, expressing gratitude to him, being benevolent and generous as a representation of him. You want to find purpose, significance, power, joy in your life? 
Money may not buy you happiness, but I can tell you generosity can. When you join God in what he's doing, you can fully expect for him to show up in ways that will knock your socks off. I want to invite you to stand with us. Jesus, I just ask that as we lift our voices in worship, for many in this room, this act of worship, this declaration of your goodness and your kindness and your faithfulness, in light of the things they're dealing with physically, emotionally, relationally, in light of those things, worship can feel like a sacrifice. And yet I ask that you would meet us in it. In this moment, as we declare who you are, as we cry out to you as the one that we need and the one who needs nothing, would you meet with us? Would you show us your kindness and your mercy and your tenderness as we display it to those around us? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.